You're going to need your Bibles now. If you've got access to one, that'll be useful. And um, Linda's going to come bring our reading to us from Acts chapter 12. We began in Acts last week. It's going to be a series that straddles either side of Easter called On Mission for Jesus. Um, We've leapt in at chapter 11, and we're going to do about 10 chapters in a row. Um, But today we're in chapter 12. So if you can get that open in front of you, Linda's going to come bring our reading. Thank you. Um, Yes, our reading is from Acts 12, from 1 uh, down to 24. James is killed and Peter imprisoned. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter is rescued. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is this angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and spent time there, the death of Herod. 
Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On, on, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Thank you, Linda, for reading God's Word to us this morning. Uh, keep that open if you have got it there in front of you. It's a longish passage. Won't be able to tackle everything. If you've got questions that I don't answer today, feel free to ask me afterwards. Um, we're going to think about life on the front line and what it's like, really, to contend for Jesus in the world around us. What does it mean to live for him? But my question to begin with is a slightly odd one. It says, are we on holiday in a war zone? What do I mean by that? Well, I wonder how many of you are thinking about going on holiday in 2024. Maybe some of you have already been and got back, having had some winter sun. Maybe others of you have got your plans in place, and uh, you know you're going to be going at Easter or in the summer. Maybe you're still trying to work out what you might do. But let me tell you, two places I don't think any of us are going to be going on holiday this year. I don't think any of us will be going to Ukraine, and I don't think any of us will be going to Gaza because no one in their right mind would go to either of those places for a holiday. You might go there to help. You might go there to do something humanitarian. But in no sense would you go there on holiday because you know that it would be dangerous. You know that the infrastructure of the country has largely been destroyed. You know that you wouldn't get the rest and the peace that you'd be looking for from a holiday. It would be no such thing. Here's the thing. I think for many of us, we treat our Christian life a bit like it's a holiday. We're looking for a, for a sense of peace and a sense of rest and a sort of place where we can go to get away from the things of this world. And I think that's why so many people get disappointed in their walk with Jesus. They think they've not been given what they were promised. Their life somehow has got harder and their dreams haven't come true. And that sense of peace and rest they thought they were going to get, well, it just hasn't come. And so they feel let down. But let me tell you this. The Lord Jesus never promised any of us a holiday from life if we trust in him. What he promised us was an entry into a battle that actually there is a war on around us and in us. And in becoming Christians, we take our place on the front line. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You're not yet in this fight. You're going to be finding out today actually what it's like, what it's all about, but you're not yet in it. And actually, it's really important you know this before you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So often, people stood in my place, they tried to say, oh, it'll just all be good. You know, just put your trust in him and all will be well. That is a lie at least understood in terms of my life now, will be easier and more like a holiday. No, it won't. 
Can I just say that up front? It really won't. Because the battle takes place on two fronts and you can't escape from either of them. One of them is within you. So Peter, who's the main character here, in a letter to the early church said this, Beloved, these weren't people he hated, these were people he loved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people not living at home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So within us there becomes a battle between our desires, the things that we want to do, which are often selfish and self-centered and informed by me and my agenda, and what God wants for me, which is radically different and is actually better, but I don't see it that way. I want my world my way. And God won't settle for that. And so there's a battle on in me and in anyone who follows Jesus. But there's also a second front that you can't avoid, and Paul, who's going to be the main character that we're going to be looking at as we work our way through Acts, puts it like this. He says, put on the whole armor of God. He doesn't say, pack your towel on your deck chair. Do you see that? It's not there. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the battle is on two fronts. One front is within us, one front is all around us, and you cannot escape if you become a Christian. And the book of Acts doesn't cover that up. It actually shows just how hard it can be to follow the Lord Jesus. In fact, the passage we just had read marks the end of the first half of Acts. So Acts chapters 1 to 12 go from Judea to Jerusalem to Samaria. It's mainly Jewish people who are saved. And Peter is the apostle in focus. And then once we pick up again next week with Sam, we'll be into the latter chapters, and that's where the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It's mainly Gentile people who are saved. And Paul is the apostle in focus. And as Luke concludes, in a sense, part one, he wants to see what life on the front line is really like. It's an amazing place to be, but it's not an easy place to be. Three things today. Life on the front line. When we're there, the Lord's enemy attacks. When we're there, the Lord's people pray. And when we're there, God's plans prevail. So there's a very simple outline for you. The Lord is the same all the way through. If you can remember six other words, then that's the rest of today's outline. So the Lord's enemy attacks, the Lord's people pray, and the Lord's plans prevail. Let's look at this passage then together. The Lord's enemy attacks. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. That means he arrested them. Herod is probably a name that most of you have heard of um, if you've ever been to church. Because at Christmas or at Easter, he usually gets a mention. They're all different Herods. It's like a, a dynasty of Herods. Here, here's four that are relevant to us, uh, hopefully on the screen now. Herod the Great is the one who had the innocents killed after Jesus was born. Do you remember he wanted to kill him? Herod Antipas was the one who mocked Jesus at his trial. So they met Herod and wanted to meet him for a long time. And as far as Herod was concerned, Jesus was a total letdown. Herod Agrippa I is the one we're with this morning. 
He kills James and arrests Peter. But he's not to be confused with Herod Agrippa II, who we're going to see turns up later in Acts, and Paul shares the gospel with him. They're all Herods. It's like when you see the word Pharaoh in the Bible, it describes different Pharaohs. This one here is different Herods. And the one here has got a plan. He's decided it's time to wipe out the church in Jerusalem by taking out the leaders. He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is a huge deal for the early church. Jesus had 12 close disciples. But within the 12, there were three. One was James, one was Peter, and the other was uh, James's brother, John. And they were eyewitnesses of certain events that no one else saw. So Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead, and Peter, John, and James were the eyewitnesses. Jesus took the three of them up a mountain. And when he was there, Jesus normally looked like an ordinary bloke. When we see pictures of him, he normally looks, if you're old enough, do you remember the Ready Brett kid? He normally sort of glows in the dark, so it's quite easy to spot amongst his followers. He must have been very useful on a dark night uh, if he glowed like that, but he didn't. If you'd seen a picture of Jesus and his friends, you wouldn't have known who was who. It was an ordinary-looking guy, except when he went up that mountain and suddenly he appeared in his heavenly form. He looked completely different, dazzlingly bright. And it was Peter and James and John who saw that. On the night when he was betrayed, he went to a garden to pray. And when he did, he took Peter and James and John with him to watch and pray with him. Herod killed James with the sword, and arrested Peter. And because Peter had escaped from prison once before, and no one knew how he'd done it, you can read back in the book of Acts, you want to find out, this time they doubled down on security. So it says here, when he saw it pleased the Jews that he killed James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread, the festival of Passover, the same time of the year that Jesus himself was killed. When he'd seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of guards to guard him, intending, after Passover, to bring him out to the people, and then he would have killed him too. That was the plan. Four squads of guards, from my research this week, I'm not smart, I just read around. Four squads of guards, four people in each. The idea was you chain one guard to each arm, making it difficult to escape, and then put the other two on doors to stop them breaking out if they somehow manage to overpower the other two guards. And you use four squads, so they only do three-hour shifts each. They don't fall asleep. There was always a problem with it being boring and people falling asleep. So a three-hour watch meant you only had to do three hours and then someone else replaced you. So the idea was you didn't doze off. So Herod has doubled down on security. And so the whole situation appears hopeless. Peter's in prison and he's chained up. There are guards, they can't get him out. James has been killed by the sword, beheaded is what they're referring to there. And it looks like Peter will experience the same fate and two of the three who witnessed some of Jesus' most amazing moments will be gone. And yet it says here, 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. I find that remarkable. Here's why. Do you think they forgot to pray for James? Do you think it just slipped their mind that when James was arrested, there was no, well, no need to pray? Oh, no, if only we'd prayed. No, I expect earnest prayer was also made for James. They prayed for that man. They knew how much Jesus loved him. He was one of the three. I'm sure they prayed fervently for his deliverance and his release. What happened? He had his head chopped off. I don't know about you, but I find it really hard when I pray and the opposite happens of what I've been praying for. But if you've been a Christian any length of time here, let's be honest, that's what happens, isn't it? We pray for something and it doesn't happen. I reckon if I went around this room and said to you, if you prayed for healing for someone, some of you would have great stories to tell, but often we'd have to be honest, wouldn't we, and say, we prayed and they didn't get better, or they died. Certainly my experience with my first wife, who I prayed for her healing every day. Or for someone's salvation that you love. And they're nearing the end, and you think, Lord, just save them. That's all I ask, nothing more. Surely that would be a good thing, that they're safe for all eternity. And I, I prayed, it's not the first time I prayed, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and then they die, and we've no idea where they stood with the Lord. By now, some of you are probably thinking, can we just get Neil off? This is the sort of stuff we shouldn't really talk about in church. You know, Neil, you're supposed to be doing a job of kind of showing us why it's good to be a Christian. And this, this isn't the good stuff. But it's the real stuff, isn't it? Why was James killed? Doesn't say. What good did his death do? doesn't say so why did the early church continue to pray when God seemingly did nothing for James because they know two things that we also know they know the character of this God one of the things my first wife said to me every day until she could no longer speak was God is wise God is good. God is in control. It takes some guts to say that after 22 rounds of chemotherapy. But she never wavered. And the reason she didn't waver was because she knew the God of the cross. You see, not one of us would have said the only way that we could be saved, the only way that we could actually have a hope and a future is if God would become one of us. And not only become one of us, but die as one of us. And not only die as one of us, but die an agonizing death, cut off from his father by our sin on the cross. Not one of us would have said, yeah, that's a good thing. Go that way, God. Would have said, no, you've got it wrong. Like Peter would have said, never, Lord. But Jess has got us to sing this morning, if Christ is mine, I need not fear. Because on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, we can see the wisdom of God. At the moment, we don't understand all things and we were never promised that. But on the other side of eternity, I know what you will say. When you see what Jesus has done, you will simply say this, he has done all 
things well. Everything was necessary. Everything that pained me, everything I didn't understand, it was absolutely necessary for the Lord to gather his family in glory eternally. We might even find out why James had to die that day. That's the first thing. The enemy attacks and he really attacks and it's brutal and it's hard and if you're in one of those seasons, it isn't easy. But the Lord's people keep on praying and we'll be glad they did because it's one of the best stories in the whole of Acts, I think. It says, now when Herod was about to bring Peter out on that very night, so the next day he's going to be executed, he's on death row, Peter was sleeping between two guards, bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he stayed fast asleep. I just love it. It's there. He's going to be executed the next day. I, I would be terrified. Let me just tell you, I would be up praying, Lord, get me out of here. Not Peter. Peter, the same coward, do you remember, in the boat when the storm came up, was yelling at Jesus who was asleep on a cushion, Lord, don't you care if we drown? Wake up, we need you. Peter's now learned some important lessons and he's like, well, I'm just going to have a nap, have a good sleep. I might see Jesus tomorrow. It's going to be a great day. I'll be back together with James. He's totally peaceful. He's not expecting to get out. Do you see that? He just asleep. The lights are on. We don't know what happened to the guards at this point, by the way. The passage never tells us. They're still there. But as soon as the, um, I love what happens next. The angel of the Lord literally has to poke him in the ribs. Wake up, Peter. Poke. And as Peter gets up, it says here, the chains fell off him. And I love this next detail. Peter still thinks it's a vision or a dream. What's a lovely dream? You know, who'd have thought an angel would pop in and, you know, my chains would fall off. What a moment. And he's about to leave with the angel when the angel says, you need to get dressed. You see, in a dream, it doesn't matter if you're not wearing the right clothes, but in the real world, this is going to be a problem as a half-naked Peter's wandering around in the streets with no shoes on. So the angel literally has to tell him, put your shoes on. It's like he's a child. You know, put your coat on, and then he's ready. But how are they going to get out? Well, we don't know what's happened to the guards. Presumably they're still on the floor asleep. Everyone's bamboozled. There are still gates to get through, and they just swing open. And it's only when Peter gets out on the street, he realizes the whole thing is real. So he then hot-foots it round to the house of John Mark's mum, Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. This is another one. Uh, and uh, he gets there because he knows that's where the church will probably be gathered in the courtyard outside, unseen but praying. So he knows to go there. And he knocks on the door. And the servant girl is dispatched to check, probably it's not soldiers come to arrest them. And so she probably goes up to the door and says something really profound like, who is it? You know, that sort of thing. And Peter probably helpfully goes, it's me! And it says she recognized his voice, so she didn't let him in. What she did instead was she went back to the group that were praying and went, out there in the street is Peter. He's there. And they were like, you're out of your mind. Shush, we're praying. No, 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 he's, he's really there. He's out on the street. They said, oh no, this is just great theology, isn't it? It's probably his angel. Well, I don't know where they got that from. But anyway, maybe, but it's definitely not him. Maybe they are praying, presumably for his deliverance. Maybe they've given up. Maybe they're just praying he'd die well. Who knows? 
And he's there. And eventually, I must have heard, knock, knock, knock. Peter the fugitive's probably thinking, I'm going to get rearrested trying to get into a prayer meeting. Any moment now, those soldiers are going to come round the corner. I'm done for. Let me in. Some people commented it was easier for him to get out of prison than into the church prayer meeting. It's true. Anyway, eventually he gets in, and there's so much commotion. Again, one of the eyewitnesses said, he just had to gesture, look, shush, stop making so much noise. We're all going to get arrested. And Peter then tells them what happened. And then off he goes, and he goes into hiding. Um, and really, we don't see much more of Peter. He's a much more marginal and peripheral character from here on in. What are we meant to learn from this story? We've got to hold the story of James and the story of Peter together. There's a great danger that you just say, well, if you have enough faith, you know, miracles will happen if you believe. What I love in this story is there's no real sense that the church really believed what was happening or Peter. Peter thought he was dreaming and the church thought he was still in prison and God brought him out anyway. You know what the lesson of this is? Keep praying bold and big prayers. I think some of us have got so damaged by life and by disappointment that we've almost given up talking to God about anything. And when we do, we kind of caveat all our prayers. Do you know what? He can decide how he answers your prayer. But you should pray in accordance with his will and character as big and bold as you like. And keep doing it. Because miracles do still happen today. I'm not going to share any of the ones I've seen, but if you want to know which miracles I've seen, I'm an eyewitness of, come and ask me afterwards. I've seen miraculous events. But you can also pray things and then just be surprised. Susan and I were visiting someone on Friday, and she's normally not interested in our faith at all. And with semi-faith that morning, I prayed something like, oh Lord, please help Susan to say something that will point this person to Jesus. Only semi-believing that that might come up, because this person never really shows much interest. And then in the conversation, this person started running through different family members, and Susan is the only one who believes. And she listed a whole load of people who don't believe, and then she said, so why are you a Christian? Not quite what must I do to be saved, but it's pretty good. Do you see? We've been so bashed up by life, many of us, that we've stopped asking for big things. If someone's sick, of course you should ask for their healing. Of course you should. There are other things to pray to, but pray for them to be well. If someone needs a job, pray they'd find employment. Someone's suffering in any way. The Lord is merciful and kind. You don't know what he might do. You don't even know when they're due to die. So even if someone is very sick, it's right to pray for them. Don't give up praying big, bold prayers. Finally, it's amazing what happens when God's people pray. It's amazing even when the enemy attacks that God is able to answer his people's prayers. But it's the Lord's prayers that prevail. That's where um, Luke finishes here. Herod is utterly confused by what's happened with Peter. He doesn't find him. He doesn't know what's gone on. He just, as is his wont, has the guard slaughtered for letting him go and then heads off into a local dispute up on the coast with Tyre and Sidon. 
and he'd fallen out with them. And again, because he's a tyrant, he just cut off their food supply. So there was a good reason for these people to want to negotiate. They found someone in Herod's court who would help them, and they managed to kind of form an agreement. And it says here, on the appointed day, verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes. He dressed himself up, puffed himself up. The Bible is historically accurate. One of the reasons we know that is because of archaeology. Another is because a number of things are written about in other sources from the time. This death of Herod is written about by Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. And he actually describes more fully what Herod put on. Herod put on a robe made of silver throughout, which shone and glistened wonderfully when the sun's rays fell on it. And its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed on it. I'm so glad he wrote that down. Because it actually reinforces something the Bible says elsewhere about the fall of the king of Babylon and the fall of Satan himself. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's a description of the destruction of the king of Babylon, which many people take to also be an account of the fall of Satan. And it begins, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Herod was dressed up like a star fallen from the heavens. It says that the people worshipped him. And it says here, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high and make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. What do we see in Acts? As he dresses up like a star, puts on his royal robes, takes his seat and delivers a speech to them. The people start shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And he laps it up. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Before it says that Satan fell like a star, the verse before says this, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, the sound of your harps, Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Herod was eaten by worms. Josephus tells us it took five days of agony for him to die. Herod is a satanic figure in this story. He acts as Satan acts, oppressing God's people and stopping the spread of the message of the good news of Jesus. His means are lies. His means are violence. His means are murder. And at the heart of it all is pride, the root of sin. And yet what we see here is him being judged for that attitude in his heart of rebellion against God, of saying, I will be my own God and you will worship me. He is a very blatant example of that. But can I say that attitude exists in my heart and in yours too? And the only one who can subdue that battle within is Jesus. 
He's the only one who has the power to change us from the inside out, to take us off the throne of our lives and to put himself on it. He's the only one with the power and the authority to change us. And no one is beyond his reach. The passage that Linda read ends like this. For the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Do you see, it's a great reversal here. At the beginning of the story, James is dead. Peter is in prison and Herod is triumphing. By the end of the story, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and God's word is triumphing and spreading. It's a reversal. It's a, a picture, I think, of the reversal that will happen finally when Christ comes again and all is put right. But in the meantime, his word is still doing its work. Here are the next two verses. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, the house where Peter went with his mums. And they took him back with them. That's not the verse I'm interested in this morning. Sam will cover that next week. He's also doing this one, but I want it first. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, ah, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. A lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, Satan's own dynasty. And yet, such is the power of God that the wicked and the worst, the friends of those connected to power and authority opposed to the gospel, can hear the good news of Jesus, know that Jesus died on a cross for them, know that he rose again to give new life and become part of the family of God. And get into that battle on the front line for the other side. Brothers and sisters, life on the front line isn't easy. If we love Jesus, the enemy will attack and sometimes those attacks will be fierce. They are deeply personal. He'll hit you where it hurts the most because he hates you. He knows you and he hates you. And in those times, what you need are a band of brothers and sisters who will pray and pray and pray for you. That's why church matters. It's not about me and God. It's about being part of a community of people who bear one another up in the battle. But we're not in this alone. He is with us. And the assurance of Scripture from start to finish is this. No matter how tough and how dark the darkness gets, the light of Christ will prevail and his plans will win out and he will be seen as victorious. And one day we will be with him in a place where sin and suffering, sorrow and death, mourning and pain are gone and the battle is ended for Christ has won. Let me pray. Father, there is much here this morning, more than we can consider. But I pray, Lord, that in the midst of this, and we've touched on so many things, your word would do its work and would continue to advance and spread in our hearts. 
Father, I pray for any here this morning who don't yet know Jesus. Lord, there is a lot here that's confusing, potentially frightening. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be showing each and every one of us here that Jesus Christ is enough. He is powerful. He is able. He is mighty to save. He is strong to deliver. He is with us in the battles that we face. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless those here today who don't know you with an understanding of what Christ has come to do. And for those of us who do know you, especially those of us who are bashed up and broken and struggling, that we will look again to him and bring our requests boldly to a God who loves and a God who saves. And that we might know the joy, that joy of really believing and trusting that even when life is hard, Lord, your plans will prevail. So, Father, please lift our eyes again to Jesus. Help us to love and adore him. For in his name we pray. Amen.